Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of God. Why are we drawn into gossip? And why is it that complaining is somewhat contagious? When we read the news, we're mostly reading about everything that's wrong with the world. Not entirely, but if you said, you know, I want to put together a newspaper where we just report on good things, it's a good idea, but it's not interesting enough that people would likely read it regularly. What is it about the nature of the world that we're pulled into problems, brokenness, that we're so aware intuitively that something's wrong, that then it winds up feeling superficial, that we want some sort of escape, we want something good, we want something uh, that satisfies us. It's easy to get cynical. Well, we're looking at Psalm 27 over the course of three weeks. We looked at it last week. We'll look at it again next week. Psalm 27, which is not escapist, it's not superficial. Um, And what we looked at last week was those aspects of the psalm that really highlight, uh, here's an individual that has a lot of difficulties. Betrayal of closest family members, uh, gossip and slander about him, uh, people who have evil intentions that are conspiring against him. And so he's forthright about those things. And so last week we talked about how, how prayer can be a place to, to be strengthened as you process life with God. But it is striking in the midst of that honesty and that coming to God because he's anxious, there's also an expression of, of joy. And so what I want to focus on today is that aspect of a devotional life where we seek God for joy in worship. It's something that we really need, uh, and it's something that we don't necessarily experience as intuitively as we should. So we're focusing on on seeking God in these three weeks in Psalm 27, because in in verse 8, David, or the writer of the psalm, is aware that there's an invitation. You have said, seek my face. And there's a sense in which all of Scripture invites us to seek God, and we might say all of creation invites us to seek God. So in verse 8, He is one of those who responds, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. 
And so um, that invitation that you are invited to, what does it look like to seek God in your anxiety, in your difficulties, not simply for refuge and strength, but also with the hope that there could be joy for you? Well, in verse four, when the writer of this Psalm talks about his priority, what is the one thing I will seek after? Well, he wants to go to the temple in Jerusalem. In his context, that's where you find God. So I wanna go there and he says, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Now I want that to be our focus today. Uh, And so what I wanna begin talking about is superficiality because I think that's what some of us may think when we hear of this seeking the beauty of the Lord. But I wanna move from superficial to sincere because actually there is something of substance we really want. Uh, to surprising, which is actually when you when you recognize how God's beauty is different, it actually uh, renews our souls. So I'll move from uh, superficial to sincere uh, to surprising. But I want to begin with superficial. There's an expression many of you would have heard, which is that beauty is only skin deep. It's a very helpful saying for a lot of good reasons but it does betray an assumption we have that when we're talking about beauty, we're talking about perhaps a time, space, cultural norm of something that we just say that that's what looks good to us and we're gonna call that beauty. The writer of this Psalm wanting to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord has something much deeper and much more profound, uh, what he says in verse four, But we have to be aware that actually we will have a tendency towards the superficial. So not only to read the psalm wrong, but actually to to step to think we're stepping towards God, but actually not really connecting in the depths of our being. And so as as I was thinking through this, I'm going to introduce now three categories from the the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard that I I think could be um, helpful, at least it was to me. In one place, he talks about these three spheres that, that he describes most people as living in one of them, the, uh, the aesthetic, the ethical, and the religious. And for him, the aesthetic is about sense experience. So it's not just about visual, but it's largely characterized by a life that seeks pleasure. Uh, that's what you want most. And therefore, it winds up being a little bit individualistic because it's about me and, and how I'm experiencing the world. Of course, people matter. Uh, but the enjoyment of people is about my satisfaction. And so that's not necessarily a critique of it. It's just a reality that those who have pleasure first, those who want an aesthetic life, what tastes good, what looks good, what feels good, uh, that's what they're going to pursue. There's another sphere, the ethical, which is more about a world of right and wrong and good and bad. And what are the rules? What are the principles? And, and because of that, it winds up being a bit more social. You're aware not just of yourself, but of other people. So how do we get along? What is the concern for justice? That sort of marks the ethical. Um, When Kierkegaard talks about the religious, you know, the word religious, a lot of us would have a negative connotation. Jesus is very critical of institutional religion. What, what, uh, What Kierkegaard is talking about is a radical kind of faith that encounters God. That's what he's proposing because his assumption is that every human being is grappling with despair deep within. And we're trying to manage it in some way. And so therefore, the role of the aesthetic, we think is to satisfy us, but it often winds up just distracting us. We keep ourselves busy with uh, entertainment so we don't need to deal with that despair. Or uh, the ethical. You know, um, in either case, there's an irony about being self-centered, which is it works against your own interest. 
And we know that. We know that we're over, when we're overwhelmed with me and my concerns and, and how bad my life is, it's a miserable place to be. So the aesthetic, if you see something that captures your imagination, something bigger than you and your troubles, it, it brings a feeling of relief. And in the same way, the ethical, a reminder that it's not just about me, but about a responsibility I have towards other people, helps us to step out, at least by our feeling, out of our self-consuming concerns into something that is, feels more meaningful. But the problem is none of these things are underlying, uh, addressing the underlying despair. Kierkegaard argues that it's, it's faith, uh, an encounter with God that does it. And so then what happens for the aesthetic, you know, one of the interesting things about the aesthetic life, the life of pleasure, is it's, it needs constant exposure, constant satisfaction, uh, and it tends to wear off. You could have the greatest meal in New York City, so great that you think, I'm just going to eat this every day for a month. And then by two weeks, it just doesn't do the same thing that it did. And when the whole of your existence is everything is constantly wearing out until you get to the next exciting thing, but you've you're now narrowing the options, there's this inevitable uh, discouragement, disappointment, along with how you're selfish, if you're doing it in a selfish way, how your life is impacting others around you. It could feel actually a lot more hopeful, and I suspect it's, it would be a step of progress to, to be more ethical, to be more aware of the world around you. Um, but when you're always trying to analyze and figure things out, there, the, the, the touch point on our control, our need for predictability, for us to understand, what winds up happening is we're we always going to lean towards some kind of moralistic law rule something uh, where if you're trying to find who I am, I want bigger than me. So if there's an us, there's something there. If, if, I could, if I could connect with other people and have my identity formed by understanding uh, these people and what are the rules of engagement, I could feel like I'm free from my selfish concern, except that human history shows whenever there's an us, there needs to be a them for it to work. If I want to feel satisfied here, it's not simply that I need to know where I belong, but I need to know why we're better than those who fall outside of our boundaries. And I would say in the last few years, while, while generally uh, sort of modern New York City has a strong hedonistic bent, it feels like we're going strongly in the moralistic uh, direction, which means that that the tribalism, the anger, the frustration, because our law is not being kept, is part of how we're getting used to functioning. Um, an encounter with God is meant to to satisfy something below the surface that's not superficial. So it's not just a matter of distracting ourselves with pleasure or motivating ourselves with anger or something that's making us feel like we have meaning in life. But there are other possibilities, but it's worth our pausing there, which is to say, uh, you know, there's other lenses, other ways to think about things, but, but those two categories generally, I think, uh, are, are directions most of us will lean one way or the other, and therefore, as we form into Christian sub-communities, we tend to be drawn towards one type of church or the other. What we're all presumably aiming for is substance, the glory of God, the truth of the gospel, something that really sets us free and transforms us. That's what we want, but that's hard. It takes seeking, it takes persistence, it takes adoptability, it takes learning, it takes being willing to be corrected, and therefore we wind up perpetuating superficial Christianity. And so will our church, trying to be all things, to be more of the aesthetic church, where we capture your hearts, or more the ethical church, where we're changing the world, 
and so most churches are going to go in one of those directions. And so the aesthetic church who really wants you to experience God, that's good. We want you to experience God. We, we don't want to advocate boring worship. You're at a Presbyterian church with a guy with a tie. So yeah, we're not the most dramatic. So maybe it's easy for me to, uh, uh, to be critical, but, but I want that vibrancy. I want that joy. But we're always going to be careful to say, you know what, when it's not happening naturally, because you can't control it, we want to be careful not to use lights to try to manipulate us into the experience we sincerely want. It's the right desire. But the danger of that is, if you're able to deliver the experience consistently on Sunday, the person who needs that experience to keep them going by Wednesday is going to have some other promising pleasure that will draw them. And without the stability, without the maturity, we wind up remaining superficial Christians. Maybe a church like ours is more likely to land in the legalistic camp that we want to understand things, we want to have control, we want to have discipline, and then all of the negative byproducts of that, that we wind up with pride, thinking that we're better than others. The gospel is meant to transcend those things, but it's, it, it needs to get below the surface. We can't just learn the Christian vocabulary, the Christian norms, and do it. We need to be people who are really seeking God. So I want us to move, uh, or to at least be thinking as a church, but also you as individuals, how do you not settle for the superficial. And now I'm going to move into the second section, which is sincere, which is that, that every human being really wants the deep things being offered. And so we wind up superficial because it's hard, because we're foolish, because of any number of reasons. But there's a sincere longing in us uh, for things that are bigger than just ourselves, for, for things to work, for an experience of God that's dramatic and a community that's just and upright. And so, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll hear in, in uh, Christian circles or uh, philosophy circles, there are these three transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness. Uh, transcendent, they're, they're bigger than us. There's something outside of our time, our moment, that we long for, and it's really there in us. We really desire it. The danger is settling for too little. The problem is not that we pursue the satisfaction of those desires with great passion. And so if we're to think about uh, in Psalm 27, this person who seeks God, makes that his priority, and somehow he's, he's putting joyful worship there in the midst of his difficult circumstance. How do we do that? Well, in this point, trying to be practical, one of the things we talk about, many churches talk about, is a simple model for prayer that we call ACTS, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. There are four different categories of things you can do to make sure that you devote an intentional time of being before God. And uh, I, you know, the ACTS, we, we typically put it there because adoration should be first in the ideal of how we do it. Why? Uh, because confession is about me and my problems, and thanksgiving is about what you've done for me. Supplication is about my concerns. It's not superficial to, to be that human being with your life and want to bring you and your life and your concerns and your problems to God. But it could be helpful to, at the outset, begin by saying, before I think about me, let me be still and think about you and your goodness, the character of God. Uh, and if you're able to do that, then when you move into confession, here's how I'm not connecting with that. With thanksgiving, here's how you've brought that into my life. With supplication, here's where I really need your help. 
um, it's a much healthier way to do things. The problem is, I suspect if we were to take a survey here, of the four areas for the vast majority of us, adoration is the most difficult. It's the one that we're most disconnected from. And so confession sounds hard if you think that your job is to continue to find new flaws in you so you could grovel before God until he's pleased to, uh, to break you free from it. When you realize that confession is because God doesn't want hypocritical people pretending they're okay, but he wants us to be honest with ourselves, then as you go through life and you're constantly thinking, I'm an idiot, I'm a failure, to know that you could come before God and just be yourself and be honest and name those things, that actually becomes second nature. Confession, if you really understand it, is quite easy. Thanksgiving is manageable because you could do things. You could, you could sit down with a pen and paper and say, you know, I'm just going to, the things I take for granted, I'm going to put them on a list and I'm going to know I should be thankful and then I'm going to give thanks. It's valuable, but it's controllable so we can do it. And supplication, whatever it is you need is already on your mind. So simply saying, God, help me with it is intuitive. It's the beauty of God that's so hard for us to connect with. And therefore, because it takes effort and we don't like doing things we're not good at, you say, I want to sit down and spend 20 minutes in prayer. And if the first three is trying to focus on the, the beauty of God and all you're thinking about is how you need him to relieve the anxious, anxious thoughts, by Tuesday, you're going to find something else to do in that time slot. So I've heard somebody propose the cat's prayer where you begin with confession and then go to adoration. I'm not good enough with Wordle to know how, to, how many permutations I could give you to, uh, to order things rightly and use the vowel in its appropriate place. Um, but adoration needs to be part of that discipline. And if, it, if you can begin there, if you could begin the day and just be aware God is good, there is truth, there's something stirring the soul, begin that way. If you can't begin that way, don't skip your prayer time. <laughs> Um, begin with what you're thinking, Lord, here's what's on my mind, but try to make sure that at some point you're not just seeing God as, as sort of a, a, a machine out there that can do things for you if you do the right things here, but to know that there's an entering the presence of God. And so uh, to try to be practical, so in the, in the latter half of verse six, uh, the writer of this psalm had a temple to go to. And so he was able to go and he says, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. So for him, in the midst of his troubles, when he can go to a place that he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. He is my strength. He is the refuge. Uh, going and doing the worship that was required there, then going in that walled city of Jerusalem, going into that very specific place that his enemies can't be, of course, it's going to be a place of joy. It's a place of freedom. It's a place of protection. And in that moment, his worship will be joyful. It's not that he's forgetting about his problems, but to have a place that he can go where his problems are not defining and overwhelming. And that's where we now have the opportunity to have a devotional life that not to make our problems disappear, but to be aware that bigger than today is the eternal God. And so at the end of verse six, he says, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. And so in an effort to be practical, um, of the various things you can do to tap into beholding the beauty of God as a discipline, as something regular in your life, if there's one thing that maybe you try to put in your toolbox 
Try singing, making melody to the Lord. It's not the only thing. But let me try, let me try to give a, a, a series of tips here. Um, you don't need to write these down. It's not an organized list. But my hope is if I say five or six things, one thing might jump out where you say, actually, I didn't think about that. I'm not doing that. So um, one is to take advantage of church. You're here. Um, we do a variety of things in this service, all designed intentionally. One of the things we do is sing. When I first started going to church as an adult, um, I could have done without the singing. I would be happy to have the sermon be an hour and 15 minutes, and then I have a variety of prayers. And uh, I know now I'm punishing you with a sermon that feels like it's an hour and 15 minutes, and you'd probably hope that I end in two minutes so we could sing. Some of you love singing. Um, I thought of singing as its own thing. And so I did it. Um, but then I realized actually singing is not a thing in the Bible. Prayer is, and singing is one of the ways of praying. And I know that prayer is valuable, um, but I'm somebody that could be stuck in my head, and therefore singing is a way to engage the whole of ourselves. And so it's easy to just get through that section of the church service and not realize it's an opportunity for you to focus your mind on what's true, what's good. Well, let's sing of the goodness of God, and let's align the whole of our being by, by, by making our lungs engage in our vocal cords. And, and making sure the things we're thinking about, we're not able to say with our lips, but be thinking about something else, but we're, we're trying to take advantage of an opportunity where others who uh, can sing, uh, others in this context is an opportunity for us to just kind of try to focus in a way that maybe isn't as easy on your own. So don't miss the opportunity to pray with a particular focus, with a particular energy as we sing. Now, in your own devotional lives, maybe you'll sing. One of the reasons I didn't like singing in church is I'm not one of those who sings along with the radio, those uh, heavy metal years in the 80s. You live at home with your parents. You can't really sing along with Megadeth. So I went to church without, without those habits of singing. Some of you, you love singing. You sing everywhere you go. So wake up in the morning, and if you have a tolerant roommate or neighbors, sing. Uh, in my own confessions here, I would grow in grace, but my family, their spiritual lives would, would diminish if I woke up singing every morning. So I have on occasion, if I've had trouble praying, uh, I I'll sit and listen to music as a way of focusing, as a way of beginning to behold the beauty of God, that there's something there that allows my mind to focus on the lyrics, but the beauty and the wisdom of the music around it pull my soul in. It may not work for you. I'm not saying that, that, that singing has to be part of your devotional life, but devotion needs to be part of your devotional life. Singing is a gift that God has given us, and so take advantage of it. I want to talk about psalms and hymns. And so for uh, now, with, uh, now that I'm talking, I have more of a self-awareness of, of how much I'm admitting to you that I'm, I'm not naturally a singer. Uh, the psalms for me have been helpful. I love the response of psalm in home groups where if only three of you or four of you show up, it could be a bit awkward to sing. But, but reading through a psalm is a way of engaging our voices, our minds, our eyes, of focusing on these words. But even some of the old hymns, kind of hard on your own to sing that one part, and you, there you are singing the tenor part in your living room, uh, not the best way to, to open your worship uh, time with God. But sometimes, actually, the richness of some of these hymns, if you don't want to sing it, sit and look at these poems that people have thought about the glory of God and, and try to capture in language that maybe that will help you take a step into beholding God's beauty so that then as you confess and give thanks and share your needs, you're aware of the greatness of the God whose presence you're in. Uh, another thing is just 
the, the, the discipline of being still. Sometimes you just need to sit for long enough with the anxious mind and to be comfortable, allowing the mind to go on and not trying to control it, but just recognizing it's there and to kind of wait it out and practice and hope that in a couple of weeks or in a different season of life, maybe you'll more easily be able to get to a point of quiet, but that, that sense of stillness could put you in tune with something of, of that beauty, that glory of God um, that's not verbal, but has an awareness that could connect with your soul. And the last thing I'll say is, uh, because we're a small gathering, but, but we're different enough, what is it that captures your soul in your thirst, not for the superficial, but for something deeply meaningful? And I imagine in, if we were to talk about it, some of you, an obvious one is nature. Now you're nearly in the wrong place for that, but the Northern Woods in Central Park, uh, Riverside Drive, there is something about water and trees and the sounds of birds that immediately puts some people in tune with the world is bigger, it's more beautiful, it's more glorious. And therefore, can you do that as part of a devotional life where you take a walk because it's exercise, but in that moment where you feel a peace, you recognize peace comes from God. And so, so, it, so the beauty of nature is not separate from the God who created it. For some of you, it is paintings and statues. And going to the Met um, could lead you to a moment where you see something that that stirs your soul and to remember God who created all things in the beginning calls us to take the things he's made and to create. And therefore that may stir your soul. You can taste something delicious. You could hear something beautiful. You could have an interaction with a person that just makes you feel right. And to realize all of these things are of God and how are they helping me, not simply my soul to connect, but, um, uh, but to help me behold God's beauty. So I want to say two things on this topic, because I'm, I'm trying to, to the best that I can, to be a bit practical just, you know, this summer. What are some things you could do to grow, uh, to have the kind of devotional life that really stirs and heals your soul? One thought that inevitably comes up, I imagine most of you have something like this, when you sit down to try to praise God. I'm going to sit down now and speak about the goodness of God. The inevitable thought, is God an egomaniac that just needs us to flatter him um, because he's fragile and he'll only reward us if we do these things. Um, and the interesting thing about a thought like that is a skeptical thought about God that immediately makes praising God more difficult. And the interesting thing is, where did that thought come from? It didn't come from the Bible. The Bible doesn't say, God is fragile, you need to do this. God needs encouragement. Uh, God demands this or he'll get angry with you. The thought that maybe God is a fragile, egotistical is typically our own thought. It doesn't say something about God, it says something about us, that to sit and speak well of someone is not instinctive for us. It's something that we need a discipline to train us to do. So if you find yourself thinking that, I don't, everyone's mind thinks differently. I've had some form of that thought at some point in life. And for me, in the desire to be authentic, how can I speak praises of God that I'm not currently feeling? it's helpful to know that they're true because it's who God is and that is what God has revealed. Not that he's an egomaniac, but that he is good and just and merciful. And so for me, if I find myself thinking it feels inauthentic, it feels inauthentic to the cynical me that I don't want to remain, but it's true. So to say that God is good, to declare that God is wise, even if I'm not feeling it is not a compromise of myself, it's actually making sure I'm firmly planted in the truth. And so um, don't allow yourself to, to stay away from 
um, growing in the ability to give thanks and praise to God. And another thing, uh, for, for a church like ours that intends to be a little bit more thoughtful, so we encourage the study of theology, we want you to, to be intentional about what you do, there's always the danger that that itself gives you an initial excitement because you're excited about the learning about God, but you're not coming to know God, you're learning about God. And eventually you can answer every question about God, but you still can't sit and delight in God. And that's something that happens across the board. Anything you want to be good at, it takes intentionality, discipline, and inevitably, no matter what you're doing, at some point, the thing you once loved, as you get better, you no longer love. That's this weird thing about human existence. I was reading this week, uh, the philosopher James K.A. Smith, talking about his own experience with graduate school. He said, nothing beats the love of wisdom out of you like a graduate program in philosophy. Philosophy begins with wonder, but a doctorate in philosophy is where wonder goes to die. I think he waited till he had tenure before he was able to say that. He still earns his living uh, in that environment. But I think he's getting at this, hey, I did this because I loved it. And then something happened that I lost the heart of it. And whatever your interest is, you could, athletic, artistic, whatever it is, there's always a temptation for that. And for Christians, there's always the temptation that we will become those who learn the vocabulary to speak of God's goodness, but don't have the hearts that behold it. We have that sincere desire. We really long for that goodness, truth, and beauty, and those things only come from God. Your desire will only be satisfied there. So I want to have this last section talk about this surprising reality, which is that there is a beauty of God that, that he does make known with sufficient means so that way if we touch it, if we taste it, if we have a point of contact, it, it heals, it renews. And so... Um, in verse five, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. So this is an anxious person wanting protection. So that tabernacle, though, is a place to go. Um, but why is it a joyful place? Where in verse 10, he says, the Lord will take me in. That sentence begins with, but we don't have the confidence everyone else does. But, but if I draw near to God, if I seek God in my troubled life, I believe the Lord will take me in. So in verse 6, I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. And again, the sacrifice is there um, because his life is so difficult to come to a place where he's free that he needs to look over his shoulder, where rather than being rejected and alienated, he believes he's accepted, where God has outlined a means for drawing near. And in the case of the tabernacle and the temple, it was through songs and prayers and, and various things, but sacrifices to come to this place of beauty, to come to this lavish place, for him is a way to experience joy in the midst of this world so that he's strengthened to go back into the world with its problems as a servant of God able to face them. Now, when I think of the tabernacle or the temple, when I read the instructions in the book of Exodus or other places, uh, the, the, the temple, especially in Solomon's day or after, would, would seem so glorious that there are these carvings uh, and there's this imported wood and there's these big structures and there's all these gold uh, candlesticks and tables around and you have priests wearing these uh, uh, elaborate linen robes and it, it aesthetically feels like such a glorious place that it seems like to go in there will just help pull you out of things. Now th this is me, I'm an urban person. 
the whole concept of sacrificing in the midst of that utterly ruins all of that aesthetic beauty. And I realize if you grew up in a farm, maybe it's normal, but to me, the temple doesn't sound like a place that I want to go to if you're killing animals. It probably wouldn't smell uh, as though I would imagine it smelling. Uh, slaughtering animals and spreading blood everywhere, that does not warm my heart and my soul. In my own imaginings, the glory of the temple there's something there about it that's troubling. And it's interesting because the temple was a place that was supposed to have the echoes of Eden, this beautiful world that God created, and yet there's something in the midst of that gathering that's awful and violent. And in that sense, it's not that different from our world, which still has the remainder of the beauty that God has put into it. But there's just so much that is terrible around us that it's, it's hard to recognize that. And so it's interesting in the temple, uh, where he goes and he makes these sacrifices, there was a curtain and nobody would pass that curtain. One person once a year, the high priest at, at one particular festival. That curtain is a reminder of that division. But on the other side of that is this ark. It's the holy place. There are these carvings of angelical beings. It's almost like you get so close to that reality, that transcendental, that goodness, that beauty, that truth, that we want to be a community that gets as close as we can so we're going to get right to the curtain and hope that one day the, the peace on the other side of it would be our peace. It's an odd thing having thousands of years of blood and violence as we draw near to God, but that is the nature of the world in which we live. The Christian story, why is it that today we are not going to sacrifice an animal? It's not because of the queasiness of the pastor. God has done something which is surprising, that he didn't wait until the fullness of the cattle and the sheep and the goats were sacrificed until he opened the curtain. But even in the midst of the mess, he came out. He sends Jesus Christ, his own son, who crosses the divide, who comes into this world. And Isaiah talks about the day that God's servant would come and he would bring peace and he would bring everything that we long for. But oddly enough, the prophecy is a suffering servant not permanently suffering, but until he could establish peace, suffering. One of the more famous prophecies of the Bible is in Isaiah 53, because from a Christian perspective, hundreds of years in advance, so clearly describing Jesus coming. There's an aspect in it that I imagine some of you have heard at least. So this is Isaiah 53, uh, the last part of verse two and three, and then verse five, speaking of this servant who would come that God would send into the world to bring deep change. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And for all of the things that the Gospels reports about Jesus, there's no descriptors of his appearance. There's kind of the revelation glory of the, of the uh, you know, various pictures of something of his glory, but, but there's nothing. It would be helpful to know how tall was he, the kind of curiosities we have. And yet the Bible says a lot about who this person was. So, so, so the Gospels each record what's called the transfiguration. Something about the glory contained in him came out just for a moment that the people standing there were so overwhelmed they didn't know what to do. But outside of that instance, prior to his coming again with glory to judge the living and the dead, he didn't come with our cultural norms. If there was a photograph of him in that day, we not, might not want to put him on the cover of Mademoiselle magazine. And so there was nothing about his appearance that is the thing that would draw us. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from one whom men hide their faces, 
he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And so that's the picture of, of God's glorious son comes with truth, with an undiscernible beauty, full of goodness. But we didn't want to look upon him because it was not on a superficial level what we would have expected. And in verse 9, this prayer of the one who comes, everyone is failing him, and he's confident, if I come before the Lord, I don't want the Lord to reject me. So in verse 9, he says, hide not your face from me. But God sends Jesus into the world, and at some point we need to look away. We, how, could you, how could you crucify a just man and stare him in the eyes? But the interesting, the surprising thing about the picture of the Bible is, it's as if not simply that humanity has turned their back on God, but that the Father turns his face from the Son. Why did that happen? Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Our deep fear is that when we draw near to God to behold his beauty, he will not look upon us and will cast us away. The gospel tells us that Jesus came full of the goodness and truth and beauty of God. We looked away, but the Father in that terrible moment of crucifixion, as if he looked away so that he would not have to look away from us. Our flaws are now dealt with through his healing. We are covered by his righteousness. There is forgiveness that comes to us by the grace of God who comes and seeks us so that he can invite us to now seek after him. And what that means is that First of all, we don't have violent worship anymore because that one sacrifice, Jesus bears it. And so Hebrews 13 to 15 to 16 is one place. What does it look like for us to devote ourselves to worship? Well, through him, Jesus, the one who offered himself, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name and do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. At this point, we receive all that we need by the grace of God as a gift. And when you understand that God did not come to you because you were beautiful, but God came to make you beautiful, then to sit and behold the nature of that God who is so unlike anyone else will make you say, well, what do I say? <laughs> well, say, praise the Lord. Say, thank you, God. You are good. You are just. You are wise. And then go out and through your actions show that his way is the way to live a life of beauty, truth, and goodness. I have a friend who's a pastor at a church in the city. They have their own building, and so he uses it uh, to share with a number of organizations. And one of them is a photographer who has an organization, and so they often have these um, uh, shows that, that people are invited into. So the photographer's story is he was a fashion photographer. And in the 1990s, he was shooting for, for what were the top fashion magazines, the top models. And he said that as sort of an, as an artist trying to create things, uh, it was a good environment to be in in many ways, but he felt that these you know, genetically beautiful people with professional hairstyling, makeup, clothing, uh, you, you fly out to some beautiful scene. For him, as a photographer, he felt, I just need to point my camera and, it, and take a picture. <laughs> All of the beauty is, is given there to me um, by the virtue of the scenario. And then he was waiting for a bus in the 1990s, and there was a woman with albinism, not having pigment. Um, and he looked, and he wanted to photograph her. 
And he photographed her and had these beautiful photographs and it made him want to learn more about this particular condition. And so before ChatGPT, he had to go to the medical library and open books that were helping students learn about this condition and the vulnerabilities of skin cancer and whatever technical details. But they were taken like crime scene photos where it was just a practical photo of a human being that he felt dehumanized the person in the picture. Well, of course, understandably, the person was there in order to provide the data so the person could live. It was the right context, but he had this conviction to say, I can use the skills that have been given to me because I see things differently. And so he started there, but then over the last 20 years or however long, takes photos of people whose standards of beauty don't conform to whatever our contemporary standard is. And in some ways, because of a disability or otherwise, might be deemed disadvantaged. But because he is so skilled and expert, he's able to capture a moment that then he'll capture a moment in someone where, where somebody gets a sense of who the person is. And so the feedback that he gets is you capture their inner beauty. And he says, no, I'm not trying to capture their inner beauty. I, I see these people and they're beautiful. And his challenge is how do I take the skills that I have and show the world who these people are? There's something greatly redemptive about that, something appropriate that in a church space, there would be an invitation to say at the end of the day, everyone, all of your imperfections is, is called to be part of this community that God is beautifying by his grace. And so the problem with a superficial Christianity is if beauty is only skin deep, you need to make sure your skin is flawless. But what happens when below the surface, you're very aware of your unworthiness. The gospel says, well, there is one community on earth that you could come for safety, for refuge. There's a God who will not reject or judge you, but he will receive those who earnestly seek him because he's the one who has called you. And it's in that community where you realize God sees me differently. And to behold that God is to start to behold what's true and beautiful and good. And it's that which restores your soul. So the confident faith that Kierkegaard is trying to encourage us to, which is, is not to be an, an aesthetic person or an ethical person, but to be a person of faith. Verse 13, I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord. And that's where Jesus says, seek and you will find. God is not playing games. God is just not so superficial that you could snap your fingers and have an instant life that you desire under your control. God has something far better than you're even aware of. And so, so don't weaken in the discipline of drawing near, but draw near to behold something of his beauty. And when you see it and you believe that you will see more of that goodness, it heals you, it restores you. And so um, beholding God's beauty is not urgent. You've got a list of things in your inbox, but it is important. It's probably more important than things you will do this week. So don't go through another week without failing to sit and behold something of the beauty of God. Let me pray for us. Our Father, whether this is someone's first time in church or we're becoming for decades, all of us will uh, trend towards the superficial. We just want what's easy, what's satisfying, and there's so much goodness that you have for us that we squander because we lack faith, because we hope in the wrong things. And so, Lord, may this be a day of spiritual renewal. I pray that something of your beauty, something of your goodness would be shown to all who are gathered here today in this gathering or in something this week 
that something that satisfies our souls would be seen as coming from you, as rooted in you, so that we would have the strength to go into this world filled with things that we don't want to see, but being those who are not cowardly or selfish or lazy, but those who uh, can keep going in, seeking to imitate you and your truth, beauty, and goodness in order to shine your light into this world. And so, Lord, uh, you have invited us to seek you. We're here today seeking you. Uh, show us that beauty, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.